You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's open in prayer. Father, your word is is all we need. And your Holy Spirit uses it in our lives every day to conform us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this time of year, when we have an opportunity, when everybody is, whether they want to or not, they are focused, they are recognized that the Savior has come. Lord, might we be emissaries that are um, usable by your Holy Spirit to show others that Christ is truly the way, the truth, and the life. And as we go through your work, your words this morning, might you give us uh, interest and discernment and wisdom that we can apply them to our lives throughout the rest of our lives. And we'll thank you that your word is so active in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've all heard it that context is important. Context, context, context. One of my favorite old-time Bible teachers used to say, a text without a context is a pretext. And so there's local context, there's chapter context, there's book context, there's historical context. And as we're studying through 1 Corinthians 7, remember that when Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, they would have been aware of the things that were going on historically around them. So for us to get a fuller picture, that's why I try to bring as much history as I can in, for us to get a fuller picture so that we know what the Corinthians would have been eminently aware of in their everyday life, the things that were going on around them, the things that were coming, uh, their calendar, if you will. And so as we're looking through 1 Corinthians 7, and we're going to read it, we're going to read the the second half of the chapter here in a minute, um, from verse 17 to the end. It is so important to keep this in mind as we're reading verses where Paul seems to be saying that marriage is not cool, Refer to verse 17, you know, or what would, what would, what would it be? It would be, um, I'll look at, I'll look for that in a minute here, but he, he highly elevated marriage. He elevated it in his other books, especially in Ephesians. He likens the marriage of a man and a woman to the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and the believer, the bride of Christ and the, and the, and the son of God. So, Context outside of this book is important too as we're studying through it. And it appears sometimes you'll read things and what has happened historically is when folks misunderstood this, they formed entire movements, monastic movements that came to the conclusion that it was better to serve Christ unmarried. So we're going to be focusing and reminding ourselves about the context. And Paul touches on something that will give us a very good picture of what he was talking about in the in First Corinthians chapter seven. He was, if nothing else, uh, besides a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and a willing and effective tool in the hand of the Holy Spirit, he was a man who understood the vicissitudes of life and what could come and what can happen, what difficulties can mean to married and unmarried, and how we negotiate our way through those. And so as we're reading this chapter and studying this chapter, let's keep those things in mind. So let's go to verse 17, which is about midway. 
and we'll we'll finish the chapter out. We'll finish it out reading it. I don't know if we'll actually get through it all today. Only, verse 17, 1 Corinthians 7. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And thus I direct in all the churches. Was any man called already uncir- already circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God, the keeping of the commandments of God. Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become the slaves of men. Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in the view of the present distress. Keep that word, those two words in mind. In view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you should marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, should marry, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who would have wives should be as those who had none, as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she should be of full age, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well. And he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as the husband lives, her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier as she remains as she is. And I think I also have the spirit of God. So Paul points in this direction and in this direction equally. Married is okay. Married is not being sinful. Marriage is good. Remaining unmarried is good. And we're going to see as we go through the rest of this chapter some of the reasons why he had these opinions. And he talks about them as opinions. Now, we finished off the last time I I taught with uh, verse 24. So we're going to back up a little bit to kind of get the... the, We're going to review a little bit. In uh, So in verse... 18, he says, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. And remember, we talked about the fact that they actually had the ability to surgically reverse circumcision in the first century A.D. 
I don't know why you'd want to do that, but it was it was a it was a uh, some way that the Corinthians had translated something and came up with this. And uh, we all know about folks, even ourselves, maybe have have taken scriptures and twisted them. And and the Lord was going, if if I can be anthropomorphic for a minute, that's not what I meant. He is not to be circumcised if he's been uncircumcised, it says also. Verse 19, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. And so then he says, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able to become free, rather do that. Verse 22, for he who was called in the, while in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Whatever your station in life is, you are a Christian. You are owned by the Most High God. You are owned by the Son of God. And you can be what He wants you to be in that condition without changing it. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not, do not become the slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. And then we'll move on from there. In verse 25, he says, Now, concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Apparently, the Corinthians had asked Paul questions about virgins. Being as this is a Corinthian issue, he gives an opinion, not a command. But even so, this is to be regarded as inspired scripture. There are a number of views as to what Paul was talking about regarding this. The three major views are, one view is that they were the virgin daughters of the men of men in the Corinthian church and that these fathers had questions about giving their daughters in marriage. A second view is that the virgins were both men and women who were living together in a spiritual marriage, that is, without sexual relations. A third view is that the virgins were females who were engaged or thinking of becoming engaged but were experiencing pressure from the spiritual in the church to forego marriage. The last view seems to be the most likely. Regardless, though, Paul will give his advice throughout the rest of his section of this section concerning the virgins. And remember, the Corinthians had apparently written Paul a letter asking him a series of questions. And he would respond to those questions now concerning this, now concerning that, now concerning this. And this is one of the questions they asked him. And, and it's still my view that when they wrote this letter, they probably didn't ask him in a polite, submissive way. They probably were argumentative. And if that's true, when Paul, the way Paul comes back is eminently gentle and um, caring and specific to their needs. So concerning these virgins, he says, I think then that this is a good, this is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. There are a few, few different views about what this present distress is. The Greek that is translated present distress is actually come, comes from two words, which means a close at hand calamity, something close at hand. Some believe he was talking about the general concept of the, the second coming of Christ, of Christ, but it's actually much more likely that he was talking about the upcoming persecutions. This was 55 AD, 54, 55 AD. Nine years later, Nero begins the horrendous persecutions where he used believers to light his parties by dousing them with flammable materials, setting them on fire and raising them up on crosses. This is the present distress, the coming distress that Paul is probably talking about. It also could be that he was talking about the famine in the time of Claudius. Nevertheless, 
indeed, uh, just remember this, that one of the very first martyrs in the persecutions of Nero was a man named Erastus, and he was the treasurer at Corinth. First martyr was a Corinthian, and he was probably a convert of the Apostle Paul. Another possibility, though I mentioned, is that he was referring to a famine in the time of Claudius. Paul often referred to Christ's return, but he never uses this term, ananchi, in that context. Um, so as we look at that, it is a necessity imposed either by the circumstances or by the law or, or of duty regarding to one's advantage, custom, argument, a calamity, a distress, straits. That's the word translated the, the, the present distress. His advice is for people, advice is for people to stay as they are. And we can take this advice when we are in distressful situ, distressing situations. Um, you've heard it said, um, probably by counselors on various occasions, that when you've gone through something horrendously distressing, the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, don't make any important decisions right after that. Have, have you, many of you heard that? Good advice. That's a distress and it can cloud your judgment. <clears throat> he he was his advice was for people to stay as they are right now. It was more of a protection than anything else. He was genuinely concerned that people who added marriage into their life would struggle greatly in the coming persecutions. Worry about the protection of wives and children could potentially disrupt much of what much of the work and the propagation of the gospel. It is normal and natural and appropriate for men to be concerned about the care of their family. In the climate of the day with the coming persecutions, that care could actually debilitate an evangelist. And Paul was concerned foremost about the propagation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Any questions, comments about that? Remember, this is advice to the Corinthians, and we have to remember it as advice, because he can do it and then say, it's good to be married, it's good to stay unmarried. And here's some reasons for both of those. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Verse 27. Paul again asserts to those who are married that they stay married. Are you married? <laughs> There's a present distress. Stay married. Are you unmarried? Stay unmarried right now. Those who have been released from marriage, he encourages them not to seek marriage. That releasing could have been from a divorce or death. It is a reminder to the Corinthians again that whatever state a person is in, they can serve God and be a dynamic, useful Christian in whatever state they're in. Verse 28, but if you marry, you have not sinned. There apparently were people who were thinking if they got married, they sinned. And he's saying, no, again, no, if you got married, you haven't sinned. If you get married, you haven't sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So he details it. He doesn't leave anything up for question. But yet, such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Here again, Paul takes a very great care to give specific encouragement to the Corinthians who were able to misread, misunderstand, and misapply Scripture very effectively. Um, regarding men and women who decided to get married anyway, he emphasizes that they have not sinned. The virgins, those virgins that he mentioned back in verse 25 who were possibly considering marriage, he, tells, he tells them that although it may bring trouble in this life in view of the coming distress, if they marry, it is not a sin. It is not a sin. This is a unique form of legalism in the Corinthian church in which they had assumed that the unmarried state was superior to the married state. Paul again and again, in various ways, he regales the Corinthians with biblical information that neither state is superior to the other. 
Whichever state God has called a person to, that is their superior state. And it can change because both states are biblical. It was his love for them in trying to spare them the added agonies that can come in a time of persecution that caused him to encourage the unmarried to stay unmarried. Much misapprehension and misunderstanding of this text has occurred over the centuries. There have been movements that have elevated singleness over married life as a means of serving the Lord. Witness monasteries and nunneries. A careful reading of this entire text, and that's what I was talking about, context. Refer back to earlier verses. If you marry and you have not sinned, Whatever state you're in, you can be the best you can be in that state. You can serve the Lord in whatever state you're in. He doesn't call them to get unmarried. He doesn't call them to forever stay unmarried. Uh, a careful reading of this entire text does not yield the idea that singleness is superior, but rather, as one commentator put it, pastoral concern in a time of great difficulty may necessitate advice that is specific to the time. Um, this, this commentator, he said this, one of the unfortunate things that has happened to this text in the church is that the very pastoral concern of Paul that caused him to express himself in this way has been a source of anxiety rather than comfort. Part of the reason for this is that in Western cultures, we do not generally live in a time, we do not generally live in a time of present distress. Thus, we fail to sense the kind of care that this text represents. Beyond that, what is often heard is that Paul prefers singleness to marriage. For him, he apparently does. Uh, which he does. But quite in contrast to Paul's own position over against the Corinthians, we often read into that presence, into that preference, that sing, sing, singleness is somehow a superior status. That causes some who do not wish to remain single to become anxious about God's will in their lives. Such people need to hear it again. Marriage or singleness per se lies totally outside the category of commandments to be obeyed or sin if one indulges. And Paul's preference here is not predicated on spiritual grounds, but on pastoral concerns. It is perfectly all right to marry. So if anybody in here was feeling guilty about getting married, it's okay. It's even good. It's blessed. It's wonderful. It's a picture of the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in his church. Any comments or questions about that? Yes. Everybody has a different opinion. If you ask, it's like economists. If you ask five economists a question about the economy, you'll get seven answers. Different answers. So I personally believe, based on my study over the years, is that he probably was married. Um, and for numerous reasons. One, he was involved with the Sanhedrin, and they required... One of their requirements was that their people, their uh, their members be married, and uh, it's there's a number of others. I'd have to look back through my notes to find them. They don't come to mind quickly, but that's my opinion. Equally or smarter people than me think he wasn't ever married, and that the fact is, whether he was married or not, his spiritual information came directly from the Holy Spirit. So I would never say if he wasn't married, he can't talk about married people because he's never been there. The Holy Spirit knows about marriage. You think? So if the Holy Spirit gave Paul the information, it is unmitigatedly 100% accurate. So whether he was or not is somewhat immaterial, but a question of interest. I think he was. And I don't know what happened, whether his wife died or she left him when he became a believer it's, it's really hard to say. But he counts all of that behind him. He says, is but refuse that I press on towards the high calling of Christ Jesus. Does that help? <laughs> That's a really political answer. Yeah, he probably was or he probably wasn't. <laughs>
But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, verse 29, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. We're talking about perspective here. Many see this statement that the time has been shortened, is been shortened, or has been shortened as a reference to the end times, but there's no indication that people in Paul's time or in any other time for that matter should live differently than people in the end times. We will be given in marriage. We will live and we will die. If Christ is coming tomorrow or in the next week, we will, we're living the same way we did, the people did a thousand years ago. We have economic interactions. We go to work. We sleep. We eat. We repeat. Don't we? So, and we are to live as God has called us according to biblical principles throughout our lives, even if we're in the end times. When it's most likely, though, this is a reference again, I think, to the coming persecutions. When looking at scriptures like this and balancing them against the clear teaching, other clear teachings about marriage, it's clear that Paul is setting up a teaching on perspective. There was much to be done, especially at the beginning of, this, uh, of establishing the church of Christ. And those who are married should work hard in the spreading of gospel, the gospel. Paul is not teaching that marriage obligations are no longer important because he has clearly been teaching that they are important just a few sentences earlier. Don't just live with an eye towards your responsibility. He's saying live with an eye towards eternity as well. How do your responsibilities play into eternity? What can you as a married couple do to forward, to further the progress of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that his glory will be evident in the church and in the world So he says, men who have wives, those who have wives, should be as though they had none. He's not telling them not to attend. And we'll see that in a few minutes here. He's not telling them not to attend to their responsibilities to their wives. And those who weep, so 29, 30, and 31 are one package of information. As though they did not weep. And those who rejoice, as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy, as though they did not possess. Those struggling with grief over lost opportunities, the death of a family member or some other calamity should in the same way reestablish their eternal perspective. Those who are rejoicing for some wonderful happenstance should also maintain a proper eternal perspective. How does this work into eternity and my responsibilities towards the Lord Jesus Christ? Those who had just purchased some wonderful item, this really kind of hit home in America today, should not be caught up in that item. We must never let the trappings of this world displace our love for the Lord, nor our work for him. The accumulation of things, money, and even such things as fame can be a powerful diversion from properly living for Christ. In these shortened and difficult times, Paul is reminding the Corinthians to be about the business of attending to eternity and to the gospel. Verse 31, and then I'll ask if anybody has any questions about these three verses. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. It is important not to get caught up in the things of the world because they are in fact transitory. They seem very real and they are real. But in the great scheme of things, in the eternal, in comparison to eternity, they are very transitory. God talks about the life of a man as a breath, as as the grass that withers overnight. Because as the, to the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Our, our perspective must always be tinged by eternity, by an eternal perspective and the glory of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. One translation stipulates that 
We should not become engrossed with the things of this world. Today, this is seen very clearly when you're walking down the street and you see 95% of the faces directed downward, looking at some little screen, not engaging in normal interaction with people. Um, those of us who are older, that is inc- incredibly frustrating. And it's, it's probably my problem. But people come into my store and I'm thinking, why did you come in? Can't you talk out on the street? I mean... <laughs> So I want to go, can I help you? And I go, I would be intruding. You know, and, and that's just a little thing, but, but it's the nature of our society today that, that we've closed in. And, and we've talked about this. I've literally seen people on the same bench seat texting each other. Hello? The ears, our ears, if evolution's true, we're going to lose our ears. We don't need them anymore. Because we don't even need to talk on the phone. We can text each other. And I'm not decrying it. Technology is wonderful. It's not evil. It's how we use it. It's what we do with it that makes the difference. It's. <laughs> I wasn't going to use that word. But I agree. They're not engaging in normal interaction with each other. Paul reminds Timothy in his second letter to him that a good soldier of Christ does not become entangled with the things of the world. He says... You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active duty entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. If you're a married couple soldier, then don't entangle yourself with the... the, the, the uh, Affairs of everyday life outside of your marriage. If you're a single, don't entangle yourself with the affairs of everyday life. Work for the Lord so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And Christians are, after all, don't we sing a song? Some, isn't there a Sunday school song that we're soldiers of the king? Or onward oh, Christian soldiers, that too, that one too. <laughs> so, any questions, comments, or, or concerns about 30, 29, 30, and 31? Verse 32, but I, Paul says, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is uh, is concerned about the things of the Lord, how we may please the Lord. Paul is not lifting the unmarried state over the married. Rather, he is simply stating a truism. Married people simply have another biblical responsibility in their lives and must properly devote much of their attention to the marriage, especially in the difficult times Paul is writing about, that splitting of responsibility would would result in less getting done. He is not saying that this is a bad thing. Earlier, he said, if you get married, it's a good thing. (laughs) It's just stating facts. He is just stating facts. And so I I was trying to figure out a way to to compare this to the division of labor that... uh, has occurred in the pre-industrial and industrial revolution. If you want to get more things done, you divide the labor so that you can, one person can focus on one thing. And so if you look at a factory line, one person may be welding on the taillight assemblies. Uh, I'm not a car. So those of you who have been involved in the assembly of automobiles, go ahead and laugh, but do it under your breath, please. He may be involved with one thing, welding on the taillight assemblies, and then the car moves to the next guy. And that's his focus, that's his job. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about focus. It's true now. Um, this causes much more to be done 
that when each individual specializes and has only one job to do, in the same way an unmarried person can devote more time to direct service of the Lord. Now, it is true that a husband who is attending to his wife's needs is in fact serving the Lord by attending to her needs. And that's a good thing. This is just, Paul is just stating facts for us to recognize. A uh, single person have more time. Do they not? At least I think they do. I haven't been single for so long, I don't remember. Okay, well, I didn't see any heads shaking, no. What Paul is talking about here, though, is actual, he's talking about the propagation of the gospel, about pleasing the Lord, the propagation of the gospel. But one who is married, in verse 33, is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. He's not saying that's a bad thing. He's making an observation. But one who is married, here's what happens. He is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. He's making no negative comment here about a married person pleasing a wife, his wife. This is, in fact, the way it is and the way it should be. The man who is not attentive in pleasing his wife is a poor excuse for a husband. Any comments or questions about those two verses? Do you see what Paul's doing here? We've got a distress coming. And he's saying... You need to be focused on propagating, on spreading the gospel. Difficult times are coming. If you split your focus, it could be detrimental. It could be, I'm concerned. I'm worried. I don't want to use the word worried because that connotes much more than, it almost connotes an unbiblical way of, of being concerned about people. But he's concerned about them. And so in verse 34, he says, and this man who's married and has, and, and is properly concerned about how he pleases his wife, he says, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So he bounces back and forth between the sexes, talking about he and she, so that he covers both. Again, Paul's statement about the man's interest being divided is not to cast aspersions on marriage, but simply to paint a true picture. This is how it must be. It's the same for the woman who is unmarried and the virgin who has never been married. They can both be engrossed in the things of the Lord. The word holy here does not imply that married people cannot be holy, but rather take it in its normal sense, set apart. Set apart. The Greek word is to set apart. Again, they were able to specialize and get more done. Those who are married have to be concerned about some of the things of the world. That is how they may please one another. Remember, please, verse 28, just a few verses back. He says that if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. And, and you have to maintain your ability to, to check the context. Otherwise, we'll come up with all kinds of interesting ideas, like monasteries. <laughs> that, um, well, I'm not going to get into any of a discussion about that, but that's just suffice it to say, I think God was doing this. He doesn't have to do that because he knows the end of all, but if I was, I would be doing that. Any questions about verse 34? Verse 35. This I say for your own benefit. Not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. The word um, translated restraint is an interesting word. It means to put a lasso around you. So, um, well, I was going to say something funny, but I'll leave that out. Paul is speaking out of pastoral concern, in a heart of love for this wayward church. He's not throwing a lasso around them, which is what the Greek translated restraint is. He is simply trying to promote what is best for each of them. Those who are married, stay married. Those who are not, can you stay unmarried and serve the Lord undistracted? If you can't and you get married, it is not a sin. 
It's okay. That is his direction. Everything is for the good order of spreading the gospel to the world. Verse 36. This is where it changes a little. But if any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly towards his virgin, the word daughter is added. If she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. There are actually a number of possibilities for understanding this verse, but it most likely means that the father or guardian of an unmarried young woman, whether daughter or ward, who wishes to become married, is perfectly able, he is perfectly able to allow her to become married. In this period of time, the father had the complete disposition of what happened to the daughter. He would determine often who and when she married. Paul again redoubles his statement here that there is no sin involved if she marries. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. His own daughter, his own virgin, he will do well. Paul is careful to remind as well that if four conditions are met, a father can also keep his daughter from marriage. He must be clear first that it is the right course. There must be no obligation such as a marriage contract. He must have the appropriate authority and he must have made the decision himself to keep her a virgin. He is not to be worried about the constraining false narrative that churches like Corinth would have been spreading that the unmarried state is better and spiritual marriage is better. Spiritual marriage is better. He needs to get his information from the Word of God, not from the Corinthians. In this period, it would have been a very difficult thing. He must make this decision between himself and his daughter and the Lord and not be constrained nor bound by the misapplications of the Corinthian churches, the Corinthian church, the ascetics or any of the other legalists that were involved here. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter to marriage does well. And he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Paul's concern about the time, about the present distress, gives him the interesting opinion that he does better. He doesn't place before her more difficulties that may be coming. Imagine what it would have been like. We've never been through persecution. I mean, persecution in this country for a Christian is, is I suppose a bad kind would be if they spit on your hamburger at one of the fast food places. But in this time... They used you to light a party by spreading pitch over you and lighting you on fire. I think that was probably more painful. They would throw you in a den or in, a, in an arena with wild beasts, which would rip you limb, limb, limb from limb. Oh, fun. So this is what Paul has in view. The circus and games of the Roman, of the Roman Empire. Now, any questions about that? Verse 38. Now, as if to just remind us again that marriage is good, Paul reminds us how long marriage is supposed to last. In verse 39, he says this, If a wife, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she's free to remain unmarried like I do. No, that's not what he says. She is free to be married to whom she wishes. And then, and I don't know why he put this in there, because this should... This should be obvious, but the Holy Spirit had him put it there. Only in the Lord. Paul reminds the Corinthians that marriage is permanent. A wife is bound to her husband and a husband to his wife as long as they live. But once the husband or wife dies, the other was free to remarry. The remarriage should only be to a Christian. One would think that that was obvious, but remember who we are dealing with here. A church that seems more than excellent at getting things wrong. Note well 
that here he again says that people can get married and it is fine. It is a good thing. Any questions or comments about verse 39 before we end this chapter? Verse 40. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And and I think I also have the Spirit of God. <laughs> and again, in keeping with Paul's suggestion that with the shortness of the time and the difficulties, he believes that she would be better to remain unmarried. And he speaks with the authority of God. It's clear that he was cognizant of the fact that he was speaking by inspiration. There also may be more to this little statement here. Um, oft, I don't watch television, and so I don't really know what the televangelists are saying. But often I hear they say that they speak the words of God. Do they say it like that? Do they say God? Yeah, God. I speak the... Why do they do that? Because it adds, theoretically, at least in the eyes of the of their followers, it adds some sort of authority. And so what Paul was saying here, the Corinthians obviously were doing this. Well, we have the mind of Lord, the Lord. Because he talks about that at the very beginning of this chapter and, and in subsequent verses. He is telling them, I am speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't do it in an overt, dis- unkind, um, snarky way. He just says, I think I also have the Spirit of God. He did have the Spirit of God. And we are grateful for that. He had the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit. And in that inspiration, he gives us the tools and the comfort by which we can live. Paul's whole purpose in this chapter was to dispel more Corinthian excesses and um, silliness. And, he, and in chapter 8, he's going to do some of the same things, although it's a different, a whole different thing. Um, chapter 8 almost could have been in the book of Galatians, but at any rate, it's a very, it's a wonderful chapter. It's the best chapter we've studied so far. But uh, closing up chapter 7, Paul is taking us through the maze of the mess the Corinthian church had made of marriage. He disabuses them of the idea that a spiritual marriage is one in which no sexual intercourse occurs. He elevates the marriage, he elevates marriage while maintaining that it is, in his opinion, given the times, singleness might be preferable. He runs through the gamut of demonstrating to the Corinthians that marriage was intended to be permanent. He reminds them that peacemaking in the difficult marriages is what becomes a Christian. Those are the things that will set a Christian apart from the world. That a Christian in a difficult situation will be the vision of a peacemaker. Ooh, probably shouldn't use that word vision other than in its appropriate term. What you see literally. He demonstrates biblically to the Corinthians that they can be the very best Christian they can be in whatever walk of life they are in when God saved them. Are you an auto mechanic? Be the best auto mechanic anyone ever saw. And, and, and if you are an auto mechanic, would you talk to me after church? My engine light came on this week. Um, and he reminds them as he reminds nearly everyone he ever writes to that they were bought with a price and that they are only the servant of the Most High God and the Lord Jesus Christ and tools and blessed instruments in the hands of the Holy Spirit. He then delivers them information on an opinion on a litany of married and unmarried situations. Yes, it is okay and even excellent to marry. But in these days with so much difficulty and persecution coming, and, and I don't know how much, again, he, was Paul allowed to see somewhere into the future there? I, scripture doesn't say. And so I'm not going to say. But the Holy Spirit knew the future. 
And so he would have probably, I'm, I'm thinking that these opinions were given to Paul by the Holy Spirit so that he could protect some of the people from the difficulties coming. What is important is in any event, we need to have the proper perspective. The proper perspective about eternity, the proper perspective about marriage, the proper perspective about unmarriage, the proper perspective about the things of the world, the tools, the toys, the you guys that we have, the time that we use. How do we organize our time? I'm not going to go any farther on that one because I'm not a very good organizer, but we should be doing the best we can to organize our time so that it is used to the greatest extent for the glory of God. He reminds them that they are first the bride of Christ to the married and secondly, spouses of one another. Paul ends the chapter with another commendation of marriage, but an opinion that in these days of abiding single, in these days of difficulty, abiding single might be more propitious. So he's not, Paul is not an anti-marriage. He's not, because he actually rails against that in 1 Timothy. He simply is giving the Corinthians a perspective from 55 A.D. that in nine short years, this is my opinion, in nine short years, things are going to be horrible. Absolutely horrible. Becoming a Christian isn't going to just lose you your job. It's going to lose you your life. It could lose you your life. And it could lose you your life in the most horrible way possible. It's like the Romans, how can we make it really, really painful to die? How can we make it so people take a long time to die and they're in agony the whole time? That's what it looked like. Um, so, as we finish up chapter 7, just keep in mind, check the context. Remind yourself of what Paul said earlier when you're looking at what he says now. He has a, a, a view of perspective in mind to create a perspective for the married, for the unmarried, for virgins. How can I most effectively serve God? with my life today. Any questions? Comments? And every one of us in this room can effectively serve God or He wouldn't have saved you. He wouldn't have saved you because He wants you to be used by Him to glorify Himself and His Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Uh, Sometimes prayers, we say the same thing, not so much in a, in a monotonous way, but it's just, it's wonderful to have your word, to be able to refer to it, to be reminded, to be prodded, to be goaded, to be comforted, to be encouraged, and to be used and spent in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want us all to be set apart, to be holy in that way, whether we're married, whether we're unmarried, whether we're circumcised, uncircumcised, whether we're old, whether we're young, whether we're free, whether we're slave, none of that matters. What matters is keeping of the commandments of God. And we ask you today that we might be able to do that in a way that is wholesome and a blessing to you and a demonstration to those around us that your will is good and acceptable. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.